This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. On the last episode, Shopify Build a Business winners John and Claire Easley from Carbon6Rings.com explains how talking to customers one-on-one helped them build a $1.7 million business. In this episode, you'll learn from an entrepreneur that's built an eight-figure business and manages selling on multiple platforms with just a small team. In this episode, you'll learn why choosing a manufacturer is not just about who can give you the lowest price, how to find people to hire for a business so that you can step away from your business, and how to write product descriptions differently depending on which marketplace you're selling in. Today, I'm joined by Chad Rubin from thinkcrucial.com and skewbana.com. Think Crucial sells crucial products you need for your everyday life and started off as Crucial Vacuums, which was started in 2009 and based out of New Jersey and New York area. Welcome, Chad. Thanks for having me, Felix. Yeah, excited to have you on. So, you know, obviously, uh, there's, you know, three, I guess, kind of businesses that, that we can talk about today. But let's start with uh, Think Crucial. Tell us a little more about that store and maybe some of the most popular products that you sell from that, that store. Yeah, so to, to back it up, I was on Wall Street covering internet stocks. My parents had a vacuum store as I was growing up, struggling to make ends meet. I went on to, to, to Wall Street, started covering internet stocks, uh, got laid off in 2008, and started taking my parents' product and selling it on the internet while they were going bankrupt. Then I started a direct-to-consumer company, which is Crucial Vacuum, started manufacturing direct-to-consumer vacuum. I, I literally started with one vacuum filter. Um, and that was in 2009. So then I started investing very, very heavy in direct-to-consumer. And this was really before direct-to-consumer was the in sexy thing to do. Yeah, definitely see that more and more frequently. And, you know, both of, both you and I are from the, the New York area, New York City area. And I see so many businesses popping up that do direct-to-consumer advertising all over the place. Um, so, yeah, so you started off first uh, in the, well, you know, in Wall Street, but your first foray for into entrepreneurship was taking your uh, family's uh, vacuum business and started selling online. Did you have any experience in selling online at that point? Or like, how did you, I guess, uh, launch that side of the business? Yeah, so I was covering internet stocks on the street, and so I found that the internet was a recession-proof industry or a very defensive place to put your money, especially during that time. So I was, I, my, mom and, my mom and dad both had a vacuum store next to Walmart, and they were going out of business. So I first took their product and listed it on a site back in the day, a shopping cart, which is a Volusion, uh, and also got their product on Amazon. But when I went to replenish the product and buy it again, the numbers just didn't make sense. It didn't add up. And that's when I was like, wait, there has to be a better way. And I started taking the, sorry, I literally took a trip to China and started with my first vacuum filter. And so you guys were buying these from wholesalers at the time. Like what, what, what would the, how come the numbers didn't make sense when you were selling what your parents were selling, but then you were able to find, I guess, a cheaper alternative to, to, uh, to doing the kind of business that they were doing. Yeah, look, the vacuum industry is like every other stagnant industry that just hasn't changed with the times. And I just found a really interesting niche to 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 target. 
And that was the vacuum space. Like literally the vacuum space, you have an OEM manufacturer that sells to a distributor, that sells to a dealer, that then sells to the end consumer. And so I just wanted to get as close as I could to the factory and as close as I can to the consumer. And that's where I started with the crucial vacuum idea. And the crazy thing is, is that I thought it would take me years or decades to like disrupt the industry. And it didn't take me quite long, but I already picked the name Crucial Vacuum. So I grew out of the name rather quickly. Mm, makes sense. So I think this is a, a path that a lot of other entrepreneurs want to take, which is like you're saying, if you're a little bit too far down the line, your margins are going to be very thin and it just becomes a lot harder to scale, a lot harder to build a business. So you decided, let me just get right to the source. Tell us about that experience. Like, How do you even begin to you know, go to China, find a factory? Like, What was that process like? So it took a lot of research. I created a spreadsheet on the top, had all my suppliers I sent each of them, that I, all the suppliers I found, I sent each of them some samples of what I wanted to create. And I started comparing, not only price though, I started comparing quality, uh, lead times of different suppliers, and just started spending a lot more time with the suppliers, which ultimately led to a trip to China and having a beer with the factory floor managers. And that's ultimately how I started making my decision about who I was going to do business with. Mm, makes sense. So this process of finding the, the manufacturers, again, it's probably a stage a lot of listeners are at. So tell us more about that. Like, how did you, like, what were you doing to research these manufacturers and how did you narrow them down uh, to, to the ones that you wanted to spend the time to get to know? Okay. So number one, back in the day before Alibaba was really, Alibaba.com was really crowded. That was a really good source to find factories. Mm-hmm. Uh, and B, I would narrow narrow it down based on not only prices. I feel like a lot of people in the e-commerce space only look at price. That's all they care about. But it's more than that. It's about lead time. It's about the ecosystem. It's about the mins that they're offering, the minimum order quantities. So there's a lot of different factors that came into it, along with the relationship, especially upon shaking their hand when I went to China and meeting with the factory floor managers and understood their manufacturing processes. Mm. So the lead time and the, the minimum order quantities, uh, those are you know obviously numbers that you can easily compare between uh, factories. But then you also mentioned the ecosystem and the relationships. So let's start with the ecosystem. Say a little more about that. What do you mean by, by the ecosystem? How do you determine, how do you measure, I guess, the ecosystem between one manufacturer versus the other? Yeah, so e- the, when I say ecosystem, it's not just about manufacturing the product, but it's also the product packaging. What kind of cardboard is the, is the, is the product packaging coming with? Uh, how amicable are they to maybe push me up the, the priority list in terms of lead times, so to push me above somebody else. So there's more than just looking at the factory. It's the factory plus the packaging, like the co-packaging facility that they're packaging at, and also how good is the quality of the product that they're shipping to you. And then, of course, when I say ecosystem, it's also the relationship. That's also part of it. So mm. the relationship is, okay, if I ask them who their supplier, who else they're manufacturing for, are they going to give me that answer? Or maybe they won't give me that answer. So it also helps with a trust factor when you ask the manufacturer, okay, who else do you make it for? And if they're honest or not. So I think it's a good litmus test. I see. So you look for a lot of transparency in a, in a, in a manufacturer. Like you are maybe not testing them necessarily, but you are asking questions and trying to see how open they are with uh, revealing, I guess, information to you. Yeah, and a lot of factories pose as, or a lot of trading companies pose as factories. Trading company is some is like another middleman on the Chinese side that represents the factory because way back in the day, uh, factories really didn't have the proficiency to speak English. So they had these companies representing them, kind of like mm-hmm. agencies. 
And so I really try to stay away from trading companies and go as direct as I can. And how do you identify that? Is it by asking the questions or like how do you identify that you're not actually hitting the, the main, I guess, source? It's, it, you know, it's a lot of metrics. It's partially price. It's partially saying, hey, by the way, we're doing a Skype call right now. Why don't you turn on your video and give me a tour of your factory? That would be mm. awesome. Let me see what's going on in the factory. Makes sense. Okay, so you determined that you, you know, these specific factories are the ones that you wanted to work with. You found that you had, you could build a, a good relationship with them. Do you just dive right in, or like, how do you begin the relationship, the actual, I guess, commercial relationship with these uh, manufacturers? Well, outside of having a beer with the factory floor owner, <laughs> yeah, exactly, uh, the manager. Uh, so, diving into the relationship, I will start with hitting some some smaller minimum order quantities. Typically, the factory will be like, oh, you know what? Our minimum order quantity is 5,000. Well, I'll say, you know what? My minimum order quantity is going to be 100. And then it's a negotiation practice after that. Okay. So that, that's an important point to make. I think when people are looking for factories on Alibaba, wherever they're looking, they see these minimum order quantities and think that that's like a hard limit. You're saying that it's always negotiable. Everything in life is negotiable. They don't teach you that in school. This is taught in the school of life. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you have a lot of experience with that. So when you do when you do take these kind of minimum order quantities, you are I guess when you first place the the initial run, you said that you first started with vacuum, was it filters? Yeah, I started with one vacuum filter. I see. So you placed an order for these vacuum filters and did you already have uh, a an, an e-commerce store at the time or what was the I guess first step towards selling yeah. these uh, filters? So, yeah, I had an e-commerce store at the time launched the first one. I also was still reselling some other things, but I phased that out over time and really went with just my own branded direct-to-consumer approach. I got, I got it. So when you created this, uh, this store and then started um, selling the, your, your own products, these products that you're getting straight from the factories, how did you market? Like, what, were, what, were, what were some successful ways early on to drive that traffic? All right, so back in the day, Google product listing ads were unpaid, so it was free. Um, I had text ads as well that were flowing. Uh, I'm, I'm literally, I look at e-commerce and I've done this since I started, was I needed to be on every channel, every marketplace I possibly can be on. So not just with my own storefront and driving traffic to that. And I did a lot of that through Google, but eBay, Rakuten, Sears, Newegg, uh, Wayfair, Overstock, now jet.com, walmart.com. It's, you get the idea. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So you are, is this your approach today too, to be on every marketplace? Oh yeah. That is the approach that I utilize. Does it make it difficult then to, to, to market? Like how do you manage this entire system where you have so many marketplaces? Like how do you know where to drive the traffic? And I guess just manage that entire process. Felix, you're giving me a layup right now for Stubana, but <laughs> I, I created Stubana to manage the entire process, to operate it and automate it with one software. Okay, well, let's take, um, I guess, a detour down this path and before getting back to your business. So you started uh, Crucial Vacuums. I think this is the timeline. You started Crucial Vacuums, wanted to be in every marketplace. Was that the time then that you decided that you needed some kind of software to help you run the entire, I guess, the business? So Crucial Vacuum was just ramping so quickly. Uh, At the time, I was using just the shipping software and eyeballing my inventory. And the problem was that I was doing 60,000 orders a month. It's a lot of order volume. And the entry-level softwares that were initially in place weren't enterprise enough to handle not only my order volume, but just were incomplete, right? Because you need to essentially duct tape all these various different softwares together to run your business in e-commerce. 
And people are still doing it that way today. But I said to myself, there has to be a better way. Just like there has to be a better way when you're sourcing vacuum filters, right? You don't need to spend, tw- like buy them for 20 and sell it for 23. There has to be a better way. So I was going after the, the solving a problem. And the problem was that today you have to use all these different softwares to run your business. There's entry-level softwares that are incomplete. And then on the high end, they're very expensive. If you look at higher, you know, more enterprise-like softwares. And they still require custom customization and setup fees. So we started a cloud-based, all-in-one operational system that marries together an ERP and an order management system in one place. And that's Cubana. Yeah, so I, you know, I think this is a common, I guess, path for a lot of entrepreneurs, which is to identify a problem that they have, uh, look at the marketplace, don't see a good solution or doesn't see a solution that works well for them, and develop their own solution. Find out that other people have that same problem, and then start building their own, uh, you know, business off of a need that they needed themselves, grasping their own itch. And I think this is a path that I've heard other entrepreneurs take too, which they start with a business, an e-commerce business, and then start venturing into software because they have these kind of customized, to some degree, needs for their business. And of course, find that others at their scale, others in their industry also need it. So talk to us about this process. And if you did have an idea, let's say the store store owner out there is is listening and they have an idea for a way to improve their business, to automate it, to, you know, find some way to improve it through technology. How do you begin to build software for for that purpose? Well, I think technology can be a competitive advantage for e-commerce companies, just like shipping can be a competitive advantage. If you choose the right software stack or the right shipping service, uh, you can save a ton of money and create a competitive moat around your industry until the next person finds out about that software or that shipping provider. So for Scubana, when we first started it, and I, I co-founded it with DJ, I was telling all my friends about this problem I was having. I was like, oh my God, there's all these awful solutions that were not even started by real true sellers that didn't solve my my itch, that didn't, didn't fix my itch that I had that I needed to scratch. So I told a couple of buddies, one of my buddies uh, met DJ, who's now my co-founder, on the tennis court by sheer luck. They became great friends and um, introduced us together. So DJ arrives at my warehouse, which was looking like a jungle at the time. I violated every OSHA compliant Mm -hmm. uh, policy out there in the book. And he thought I was going to have robots all around my warehouse. And it was nothing like that. So he was like, wait, this, this is a problem? Really? There's no unified unification platform out there to like manage all these marketplaces and to automate and run your business? We started taking demos. I started, started taking demos with all these existing sort of uh, amateur entry-level softwares. And then he was like, wow, th- there's a massive opportunity here. Let's do it together. And that's, that was how Stubana was born. Hmm. So again, this is another situation a lot of entrepreneurs find themselves in, which is that you have a fast-growing business with uh, crucial vacuums at the time, and now you're thinking about starting a brand new business in a totally different, you know, you obviously have a lot of experience because you are the ideal customer, but still a totally different uh, industry in the tech industry, building software this time. Um, How do you balance the two? Like, How did you decide how to spend your time and balance both an e-commerce business and then also a software business that you were just starting? That's a really good uh, good question, uh, and I ask myself that all the time. I think the first thing that I think most entrepreneurs have a problem with, including myself, is we have a hard time saying no. And so 
this opportunity presented itself to me and I was like, yeah, it sounds great. And I thought software was a really, really easy thing to do. I was like, oh, you just create something and that's it. But there's a whole lot more that goes into it. And so luckily for me, and I don't know how others do it, but for me, I've been able to automate my e-commerce business. Like I have two employees on the ground in the United States running my, my eight-figure business. Two employees on the ground. Now, yes, I, have, I use some offshore employees, but that's unheard of. And I'm blessed because I have the software to automate and, and run the operations for me. And so we've been literally using technology to get rid of a lot of those repetitive, low-value activities that some of your employees are doing today or that my employees were doing. And we use technology to do its thing. Mm, makes sense. So, you know, before I guess Cubana was born and you were trying to automate this, did you kind of just piece things together? Like what was the what was the life like before? Life was very manual. Uh, not only did I have a warehouse for my whole pick and pack operation and I had like almost around twenty employees, depending on the season, but we also had a lot of employees doing manual tasks like exporting, tracking uploading it into uh, a shipping software and for every marketplace and every shipping carrier out there, we didn't know our true profit margin on every product across every marketplace. So now I have visibility because it's unified. I have visibility into every SKU that I have and we can get as surgical as your shipping costs. So now for every, we rank our SKUs across our entire portfolio and we have 2000 different listings out there and I can see which is the worst performing SKUs based on profitability and then I can obviously take that money off the table and deploy it at other resources that are going to actually make me more money. And that kind of intelligence, nobody, like that's the holy grail of e-commerce, having SKU-level profitability with every cost included. Yeah, I mean, I can definitely see the, the, the value in being optimized when you can get down to that, that level of detail. Um, so when, when you do approach, uh, I guess, your business and you started thinking about ways to automate and essentially clean up the business and keep it, get a little more organized, and you look back and do you ever think, are there ever any certain tasks that you don't think should ever be automated? Yeah, I do. Uh, I would say I, I encourage everyone to look at their life and see what are tasks that are low value. Like everyone has a bucket list, but I also say everyone should have a effort list, right? Things you just don't want to be doing. And so I looked, I took an inventory of my life and my grind and saw what I didn't want to be doing. But I also recognize that the, one of the most important things in my business is actually creating really, really good content and unique listings. Listings, whether it's on Shopify or whether it's on Amazon or anywhere else, spend time creating those listings. That's a higher value activity. And so we keep those in-house. We keep purchasing in-house, although Stubana automates the purchasing decisions and gives the, the seller uh, the ability to actually decide what to buy. But all the lower value activities that we never want to be doing as sellers or at having employees doing them, we've automated with technology. Mm, so this effortless, I like it. I've never heard anyone say it before. It makes, but it makes a lot of sense. So are you, are you including things on this list, just things that are low value? But, or what about things that you just don't like doing, you're not good at doing, you dread doing, but it would be high value if it were done? All the things that you either hate doing Find somebody that has their core competency or that likes doing that activity. All the repetitive things that you're doing, the same thing. But not only did I do it with my own life or my own grind and my hustle in business, I actually had my employees take an inventory of their calendars and where are they spending their time. 
And I even got them <laughs> virtual assistants to help them automate those activities. Yeah, I think this is a, a situation that um, a lot of store owners that are kind of grinding through it and maybe are starting to not like the experience because they are so consumed by things that they're not good at or things that they don't naturally like to do. Uh, but is there a certain stage where that makes sense or should you, or do you think that everyone should always focus as quickly as possible on offloading things that they're not good at or offloading things that maybe they're good at but they just don't enjoy doing? All right, so a few things. I think it's important that everyone needs to know their weaknesses and I think that becomes an asset. It becomes one of your biggest strengths if you know what you're not good at. So why should you go and spend time trying to understand Google AdWords and understanding your, uh, your spend versus your, what you're achieving for that spend if that's not what you're great at? If you're really good at building a business or building a brand or marketing, why should you be doing those activities? So I would encourage you to find somebody that's good with those activities. Mm. Yeah, I like that. So you mentioned earlier, and I think this is a, um, a relevant, I guess, question here too, is that you had a hard time saying no. And I agree, a lot of entrepreneurs also have a hard time saying no, because to some degree, we're opportunists, right? We look for opportunities, and whenever a new one pops up, even if we don't have the time, even if we don't have the resources, we just can't help but think about, you know, what if we did this and that and try to clear up some room to take on this opportunity. What about today? Are you, do you feel like you're better at saying no today than, than before? And if so, like, you know, how did you work towards, uh, I guess, developing that competency? So I read a book called Essentialism. That was really helpful with me helping to identify my no, what I want to say no to, and that it's okay to say no. I think we're, we're, we're all raised that, like, you get a gold star if you say yes. You know, when you raise your hand mm -hmm. in class, you get a gold star. So that's where I got the idea of saying no. I was like, oh my God, I really need to prune back my, these opportunities because I think life is going to present all of us a lot of opportunities. And for me to be a productive and happier person, I need to really make sure that I'm super, super, super focused. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I guess um, a thing I tell myself too, to say no more often, I always tell other entrepreneurs that that's a, a key thing too, that if you want to focus, you've got to start saying no more often. And that's really just the key to focus is to chisel out all the things that don't actually add value to, to your life or to your business. Um, but I guess that's, that's conceptually how you approach it. But tactically, when you sit down every day and you get these emails or people add things to your to-do list, how do you decide what you should be saying yes to and what you should be saying no to? Like, what do you, what kind of questions do you ask yourself? Well, I set up a system. Luckily, I have virtual assistants helping me with my inbox. So we have a system for prioritizing what we want, what I want to achieve. So my system is, well, we have a, a I think it's, we have a pretty intense scoring system, like a pecking order. So for me, I know what is most important for me to achieve success at Scubana. I know, I mean, I'm not so involved in the crucial business anymore, but on a cursory level, I know what my employees need to be doing to achieve their success, and I just keep them honed in and focused on it. Mm. So, I mean, it sounds like you really built a business that you can step away from. Maybe you have already have stepped away from the crucial business and let this kind of the technology that you've audit that you've used to automate run run the jobs, and then also the the members of your team control it as well. Uh, do you did you was this always a comfortable idea for you? Because I think a lot of store owners would think that you know I never leave my store, or not that they'll never leave it, but they'll never feel comfortable enough to step away from it. How did you begin to set this up for yourself? And, and I guess more and more mentally, how did you begin to set this up for yourself? Look, I had the hardest time stepping away three and a half years ago when my warehouse was just exploding. 
and I didn't know what to do. My wife, <laughs> I'll give her the credit. She's like, Chad, you need to do something about this. You need just outsource this warehouse. And like somebody had actually been asking me, uh, like a, a, a 3PL, a third party logistics company approached me a couple of times and I kept on saying, no, like, nope, nope, sorry. I like touching my product. I like feeling my product. I like smelling my, my filters and I just let it go. And I thought it was going to impact my margins like tremendously. And it had the adverse effect of that. So, or the inverse effect of that. It didn't affect at all. In fact, it allowed me to start going to the gym. It allowed me to start a different business. It allowed me to free up my time so I can focus on building my business. And you do you think that this is achievable at, at every scale of business? If you're just a store that's doing maybe uh, you know, six figures a year, is it something that everyone should look at and think about creating a business that they can step away from? Is there any kind of, I guess, cons to that approach? I, I don't see any cons to it. Like I, th- I think it's important to have procedures, operational procedures in place to help you run your business so it can function without you. You don't want to build a business about you. It has to be about the team and about other people to step in and run it. And that's part of building a system. And even if you're a smaller account or store owner, I think now is the time to actually set up the process because as you get larger, it gets harder and harder to set up the process. Like try outsourcing your warehouse after you've built, you know, after you're doing 20, 30 million, it's a much bigger task, more time consuming. And so it's better to actually start now. And that's why you see a lot of direct consumer companies now that are just starting off in a third-party logistics environment, mm. outsourced warehouse right away. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about setting this up, uh, this, uh, I guess, business that you step away from. So you mentioned you have two members of the team. Also, you have virtual assistants and, and I guess, help from uh, contractors around the world. Uh, maybe we'll start with this. Like, how do you find the right people for your business? Like, What is your hiring process? My hiring process, uh, I, I'll tell you, I've been through a lot of employees. Again, I only have two now left in the United States. And so I really like to find people that have entrepreneurial mindsets, people that actually can operate autonomously and just hop in the role and just start doing. Mm. Kind of like just getting shit done. Yeah, so how do you, I guess, how do you identify that during just like an interview or I guess the beginning stages of meeting a potential candidate? It's really hard to identify that. And I can't tell you that I've cracked the code at all, but I do try to ask targeted questions. Like, what is the biggest uh, thing you've had to overcome in life? That's a question I think is a really important question. And if you, and if you don't, if you don't, if you can't identify things that you've struggled with in life, uh, I, if you haven't been through a struggle or a hustle or have had to push through and just like, like, go through a wall to accomplish something, then I don't think it's the right fit for what I'm looking for in the business. That's just one example of a, of a question. Mm. So maybe a, a more difficult situation to be in, because it sounds like you, you were saying that you've been through a lot of the, these processes and now you only have two employees. I'm assuming that means that you have let people go as well that maybe not been a good fit or for the company that you discovered later on. What, what, is, the, what is that like? like? How do you determine that you know, this is not a good fit? And then I guess, how do you fire somebody? All right, so you know right away if they're a good fit or not. I think it takes maybe a week or two weeks like you'll know right away if they're a good fit or not. So just a just a real quick wrap up on the hiring process. I really encourage in these interviews for them to walk me through their life journey, and so I, that helps me understand the type of person that they are today. 
So they touch on these moments in life that have defined them, and that's super helpful in this process. And I ask them all types of weird questions I think that they don't actually typically get asked, even what's their favorite movie, or what do they really want to be doing in life. Mm-hmm. So, but on the firing end, and uh, I, for me, this is just my personality, and Felix, you, you probably knew this answer to this question before you asked it. I like to peel off the Band-Aid really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. So if you're not a good fit, I'd waste no time, and I try to part ways. And typically, this person knows that they're not a good fit. Like If they're not a good fit, I'm meeting with them in my lounge. I call it the dojo almost every day like guiding them. So they, there's no surprises. The, the biggest mistake I think people make is like, oh, I'm not going to tell them that they suck and I'm just going to go in and fire them. That's not the way to do it at all. I'm constantly coaching them. And if they're not meeting my expectations, they know upfront. So, so do you have these, um, you look for these entrepreneurs, look for these kind of self-starters. And I think one of the other skills or attributes that come with identifying or f- having these kind of employees is that they are highly ambitious. They probably someday want to do their own thing. How do you balance that, that that ambition to, I guess, it's eventually these people, you, you want to hire people that eventually want to leave and start their own businesses and have the ambition to start their own businesses. So how do you balance that, that kind of ambition with essentially having them work for you as an employee? I create an environment that they'll never want to leave. <laughs> so I'm constantly, if you're adding more value and working for me, you're going to be getting paid more. It's just the way I see life. Like if you're adding more value, you deserve to be paid more. It's a it's a mutual beneficial relationship. So I really try to make it like all the people that I've never wanted to leave are still with me today. So when you have these self-starters that, that are working at, at your, in your company, uh, what kind of, um, I guess, direction do you give? Like how, how involved are you? And I'm assuming this is going to be different, right? Than someone that is just a, if you hire somebody that that's not a self-starter that requires that direction, you know, hopefully um, you don't find people like this, but it's, they're going to be different the way that you treat them than someone that is a, a self-starter, that's an entrepreneur, that is ambitious. So what's your approach to working with people that are like this? Like, how, What kind of direction do you give? If they're not a self-starter? No, if they are. If they are. If you hire people that are self-starters, that are ambitious, like how involved are you in, uh, I guess, managing them? So we'll have like weekly meetings, weekly planning meetings, where we go over their progress, struggles, challenges, opportunities, how full is their cup is a common question I ask them. What's their capacity to take on more? Mm, okay. Now, I want to talk a little bit about the um, Think Crucial now. So we've been speaking about Scubana, your software business, and then also Crucial Vacuums. But now Think Crucial. So one thing you mentioned to me over email before we uh, hopped on was that you had uh, recently done a migration, right, from, I think, Magento at the time over to now Shopify. So tell us about that process. What was it like migrating a store you know, from one platform to another? So I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Replatforming is a very challenging process. And it's part of that process where you have to peel off the Band-Aid really, really quickly. And that's what we did. So we bought, we still have one property in Magento that we haven't actually fully transitioned over yet. But Think Crucial is our sort of next-gen platform uh, that we're preparing for the next decade. Mm-hmm. So what made you make that decision? Like uh, if you already had a store running smoothly, obviously you had automation going already. A lot of, like I'm assuming a lot of connections already built between the entire business. Peeling it all apart is going to be, it sounds like a very painful process. What drove you to make this decision? So I, I'm again, I'm preparing for the future. I like to go where the puck is going, not where the puck is, like Wayne Gretzky said. So that's part of it. The other part is, 
I believe that I was spending more time managing buds of the platform or fixing buds that would arise versus focusing on building my business. So part of my move to Shopify is the ecosystem. And I go back to the ecosystem again, again right? You, so you have an app integration, like seamless integration to a lot of different apps that we can utilize that are helping us prepare for the next generation of e-commerce to come. Mm. And when you do a migration like this, and the thing I was telling you before the call is that there are probably listeners out there that have businesses on Magento or Volusion or whatever the shopping cart and are thinking about doing a migration, you know, maybe to Shopify, maybe to another platform. How do you prepare for a migration like this? Wow, that's a, that's a big question. You don't really prepare. You just have to just do it right away. So for for me... A, I got my, I, you have to get fed up enough, right? You have to be really fed up with what you've got and be ready to move. So for me, I was paying for a, a server. I was paying for all these customizations. I was overkill for what I needed. And I think there is a certain place for a major amount of customizations in a shopping cart, just not what I needed for my business. So once you get your brain around the fact that, hey, I'm spending all this money on development costs, I'm spending all this money on server costs, how do I consolidate and streamline and really focus on, again, it's part of that pruning process, focus on building my business. This is the move that I decided to make. And so then I decided to go and find a awesome Shopify company to work with to build our site. And so you have to find the right partner that you identify with on their aesthetic to build the site out for you. Mm-hmm. So now that you've been through it, are there things that you wish you spent more time preparing? Because like you're saying, you want to get this done quickly. Replatforming is obviously a, a pain a pain in the butt. Um, but do you think that there are certain things that if you were to do again, you would spend more time preparing? Mm, no, I mean, I think we did, it in, in, we did it in the right phases. Like the first phase of Think Crucial is a little bit different than what it is today in its current phase of development and the web design. We want to get a site up quick and we did without all the bells and whistles, and we're, con- we're iterating on that right now. So we got up a site, we're iterating and improving upon what we've got, but I'd rather go live with a 50% done site than not go live at all. Like We just had to, we just had to make this move. Mm. And did you anticipate, or maybe now that you've done it, were there impacts to, to, to traffic, to SEO, to conversions, right when you make this switch just off the bat? Uh, so we, we did uh, some, some redirects on our end, uh, but there hasn't been a major blip in traffic. Again, we didn't pull the biggest property off Magento yet, so I think mm-hmm. I'm. I don't want to put the cart before the horse. Uh, but so far, I would say it's a successful migration because we took two other sites off Magento that weren't as large, and it was a good uh, sort of training for us to now go ahead with the next property. Mm, makes sense. So now that you have uh, you know these different properties up, uh, what what's been like the key kind of driver in terms of the, the traffic and the sales, like what, what kind of marketing channels do you guys focus on today? Like I said, so we do marketplace. We have a marketplace-driven strategy, and then we have our own website-driven strategy. So whether it's remarketing, uh, Google PLAs, backlinks, working with different bloggers, uh, I would say that's probably the largest piece of it, a newsletter blast that we have. So we have multiple different cylinders that we decide. You know, It's like a big toolbox of things that we, we, we have at our disposal to use. 
So this marketplace driven strategy, this is the idea that you want to be in all places that you can be. And I think something you mentioned earlier on was that one of the core values that you offer to the business, one of the things that you want to focus on is, are the, the product descriptions, like building out these listings, making sure that they are you know, converting. So talk to us a little bit more about that. Like when you are approaching a marketplace, whether it be um, you know, Amazon or maybe just even on your own site, how do you how do you approach the the, the script product descriptions and the, the in writing the the listings? So I want the best content on my own site, and so we actually hired people to write out content for every product that we have, and it's a very time consuming process. We try to make it funny or edgy or put puns or twists in the content, but we want to make sure that the content that, that we're producing on our site is the most unique, and is because people are coming to a think crucial or a crucial vacuum. Because we are the experts, we're not a vending machine approach. So we try to make our product listings unique. And on Amazon, Amazon is a different marketplace than eBay, that is a different marketplace than Walmart. So we try to put different content. We don't just uh, throw gum at the wall to see what sticks. I think there's a lot of sellers out there. I think that's a big mistake sellers make. They just take the same content and they try to get a listing tool to just automate the process with the same content Mm -hmm. in every channel. And that's not the way to win in e-commerce today. So how do you determine what kind of um, descriptions then to place on the marketplaces? Because like you're saying, you want the best content, you want to invest the most time and money into having uh, the product descriptions really pop on your own site, on your own property, which makes a lot of sense. But then you're also saying that you want to be unique throughout the different marketplaces to cater towards, I'm assuming, to cater towards that, that audience. Uh, How do you, I guess, understand how to speak to the audiences on these different platforms? So you, you have to know the marketplace or the platform. So for example, let's pick Amazon. Amazon, depending on the category you're in, has a 200 character limit or 250 character limit in the title itself. Whereas eBay has a, 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 a more limiting title than it does and has a different algorithm that drives what comes up in their search when you search on eBay versus Amazon. Then on Amazon, it has you can put up five bullet points. And so these five bullet points are very different from the blank canvas that eBay gives you to create an eBay listing with. So we create different content for each marketplace because if you look at Google, Google cares about unique content. Google cares about, okay, we're going to rank this in our Google in our rank because it's relevant and because it's unique. On Amazon, it's not just about being unique. It's about being compelling because their search algorithm not only looks at your product listing, but also looks at who's coming to the page and how many of those people are converting. And that's part of their ranking. That's part of how you get ranked in Amazon search algorithm. Yeah. So if you can only, let's say there's a store owner out there that they want to, you know, take your kind of follow your footsteps and expand out to more marketplaces outside of their own, outside of their own, own store. And they want to, they don't have time or maybe don't even have the, the focus to go towards one other marketplace. How do you determine, or what kind of questions should they be asking themselves to determine which marketplace they should go into next? So I don't think it's a question of time. I think obviously these entrepreneurs, if they are questioning whether or not they have time to go into another marketplace, they have to ask themselves, okay, how can I automate my business as it stands today to allow us? And how do I find a software that can help me get onto these marketplaces and operate my business so it's sound? So once you have that foundation, it's like building a house. You need to have it on the right foundation. Now, in New Jersey, as I'm sure you're very familiar with, we build malls on swampland all the time, and those malls Mm -hmm. are sinking as we speak. So you need to make sure you have the right foundation. Once you have a foundation set up, it's like a shopping cart, right? You need to make sure that you pick the right shopping cart because there's a lot of crappy shopping carts out there. 
once you have the foundation set up, then you start going into the marketplaces. And it's no sweat off your back to get onto one marketplace and then go right into the next one as well. So um, I, I think Amazon has a near-close monopoly in e-commerce. I think it's a great place to start, but I think it's a bad place to finish. So you start with Amazon. Maybe you, then you move into eBay. Walmart.com just opened up their marketplace to a lot of different sellers. Jet.com, which was just acquired by Walmart, is another great place to get real estate property and sell your product online. Then all the rest of them, Newegg, Rakuten, Sears, and I can go on and on, Overstock, Wayfair. And then you go international. So like, in order to make this happen, you need to have the right operations in place before you get started. For mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So, you know, obviously, uh, we talked a lot about how you've automated your life. So now you probably just have a ton of free time <laughs> to do whatever you want, um, which is just a joke, of course. But you did mention to me before the call that you are you writing a book or you have a book out now? No, I wrote a book. I, even, I wrote a book as well. So it's called Cheaper, Easier, Direct. Cool. So tell us a little more about that. Like, how, Why did you decide to write a book? And tell us a little more about what, it, what it's about. There's a lot of these e-commerce quote-unquote gurus out there right now that are driving me absolutely mad. And they haven't built successful multi-marketplace businesses or e-commerce businesses. So they have really no place in giving insight or advice. So I decided, I was like, you know what? Why don't I just share my journey and how I've started my private labeling journey So I go through a three-step process, which is discovery. How do you discover what to manufacture? And then, of course, uh, validating the idea to make sure you don't lose money, time, or, in my case, hair. Uh, And then execution. So three-step process is all embedded in this book the exact blueprint of how I've actually created my business. Mm, yeah, I think uh, like uh, like many entrepreneurs um, it, or like other entrepreneurs out there, they want to share what they've learned as well. Like you were saying, uh, you don't necessarily want to take advice from people that have never been in the same shoes that you have or are not on the same path and hopefully a little bit further ahead than you are. So mm-hmm. for the folks out there that want to share their knowledge a little bit more, want to create their own content to help educate and give back to the community, uh, tell us about your process. Like, how did you find the time? Uh, obviously, the automation piece sounded like it made a big difference in freeing up your time. Uh, but what was your process to to writing a book? So I was teaching uh, a class in general uh, General Assembly in New York City on e-commerce, and somebody took my class and came up after me and was like, "You need to write a book." And I was like, "I do." She said, "Yeah, you got to put this into a book. This is fantastic content." So I thought more about it. I built a relationship with her. And this goes back to my bug, which I referred to earlier in our conversation, which is my problem of saying no. And this is before Mm -hmm. I read Essentialism. (laughs) So I probably would have had a different perspective on it uh, a year and a half, two years ago. So uh, she approached me. She was like, I know a great writer that you can can work together with, uh, Frank Turner. And we worked together having late night sessions, talking about my process showing him how I do things, and we just started working together. And that's, the next thing you have, it, we had a book. Mm, very cool. So this was a, was a self-published book? Self-published book, yep. Cool. And how did you um, promote a book like this? Again, you know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs out there want to create content and start sharing it, but they wouldn't want to launch it to, you know, an empty, uh, I guess, audience that the people that are not, there's no one out there that's reading the book or that knows about it. So how did you promote this? Well, I just want to clarify, I don't think that a lot of entrepreneurs want to reveal, like most people, 
don't tell their secrets or, or what, what they want to reveal. And those that say don't know and those that know don't say. That's kind of what I found in the e-commerce mm-hmm. world. And so I wanted, like for me, I'm all about reciprocity and giving back. I love teaching. And so I wanted to apply that in a book. So what I did was I started writing a book, then I found a publisher uh, like a, or a, 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 a company to print my book. I did talk to a few different publishers, and I just decided against that route. And then I just published it right to Amazon. Uh, and it's, it's been interesting. Like I, to promote it, I've, I speak at a lot of different e-commerce events. Uh, I talk to a lot of different people. I give it away. It's kind of like a, it's a really great business card when I meet somebody. Like if we were going to meet in New York, mm-hmm. in Queens, I would bring it to a coffee shop and give you a book. And it's, it leaves a really nice impression, but also allows you to, to continue to learn. And then we can regroup and have something to talk about the next time we, we, we meet together. Mm, makes sense. I think that that's a, a great point. It's not just about selling the book, but also gives you an entryway into building a relationship with the people that do get the book. And I'm sure that people that read the book are going to find out more about all the other things that you have going on. So we know that you have three companies, again, that, that I know of that we've discussed on this, on this podcast. You've authored a book. Uh, how do you spend your days today? Like, What are you focused on, on these days? So I'm 100% focused on the software on Stubana. So my time is spent, it's kind of like it's kind of like a baby, right? When you have a baby, it needs to be fed. It needs to get the proper amount of sleep. It needs everything it needs to grow up. And so I felt that like my e-commerce property was already walking and growing up, but the software constantly needs love and support to continue to grow and to blossom. And so I spend my time building partnerships. I talk to a lot of big sellers every day, all day. And I think that's, I learn a lot by talking to them as well. Like I consume that knowledge. Like every single seller I talk to, I get at least one gold nugget that I can now deploy or even give to others in the community. So, um, yeah, I'm talking to sellers all day, showing them the software, showing them how I built my business and how they can do it too. Very cool. So now we know that you have the plan to focus on Skubana uh, for, for I guess, the foreseeable future. What are the plans for the other businesses for, for Crucial Vacuum and, and Think Crucial? Yeah. So for those businesses, it's all about my thesis of going direct to consumer, manufacturing your own product, finding pro- uh, products that solve problems, and going after niches that are really unsexy to a lot of other people. And that's where my team is going to be spending most of their time. Very cool. So thanks so much, Chad. So thinkcrucial.com is, the, is one of the sites. Crucialvacuum.com is the other. Skubana.com is the, the software business. Cheaper, Easier Direct is the book that, that, uh, that you authored. Anywhere else or anything else that you think the listeners should, uh, should check out if they want to follow along with what you're up to? Uh, they can Google my name. Uh, and of course, if they buy the book and send me a receipt, I'm happy to give them a, a free like 15-minute consultation session with me. I think that would be a great value add for your listeners. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I def- definitely think that that's worth the... Uh, right now, I'm looking at Amazon for $12 or 15 minutes. I think that that's a, a, a great trade-off to speak with someone that has that kind of experience. Um, so again, thanks so much for your time, Chad. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.